Good morning. God is among us, isn't he? He's been working as we praise him and sing to remind us of just how amazing and powerful he is. Let's just pray again before we dive into the scripture together. God, you are so good to us. You are holy and mighty and powerful, and yet you are merciful and you are tender with each of us, and you love this world that you made. God, we want to praise you this morning for who you are, and we want to thank you for all that you've done and all that you are doing. Lord, we pray for our world this morning. We know that you are holding this world in your arms, that you are the Lord of history, and we know that you've asked us to pray for our world, that when we pray, things change. So God, we come to you today praying for peace in our world. We pray that the conflicts that are bubbling around the world would come to an end. We think of the, the civil war in Syria that has displaced so many people and, causing, and is causing so much suffering. Lord, we pray that there would be a breakthrough there and that peace would come. We pray for the fighting that's happening right now in Iraq and Afghanistan. We ask for your peace to make a way where there seems to be no way. We pray for the struggles for peace in Colombia and all other places in the world where people are wrestling with how to move forward as a country. Lord, may your spirit move and guide, give wisdom, give grace. Oh God, we pray that you would bring healing and wholeness to this world. We lift up our country today too, Lord, as we are on the brink of this election. We pray that you would enable all of us to follow you and have your wisdom. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guide us, Lord, as a nation. Make us able to make good choices and to glorify you as your people, as Christians who are followers of you. We pray that you would bless all people in this nation, whether they are followers of you or not, and that all would come to know you and that you would use us to bless the rest of the world. Lord, closer to home, we know there are many that we know in our communities, our extended families, people we work with or go to school with who really are in need of your touch today. Lord, some here in this room have come with broken hearts today and are in need of your healing, your power, just the strength to keep on going. Well, Lord, would you touch each one in just the way that they need. We are so grateful to be able to commit all these needs to you. 
We know you are the Lord of life. And that there is no other place we can go to find that kind of life. So Lord, we give ourselves to you this morning. As we look into your word, would you be our teacher and our guide? Help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Again, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus talking here. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read just two verses. Verses 21 and 22. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Friends, this is God's word for us today. I don't know if I should say ouch or thanks be to God, right? Ouch, but thanks be to God. This is his word for us today. Groucho Marx uh, once said that politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. (laughs) It's hard not to be a little bit cynical or laugh at jokes like that about politics right now in this season that we're in. And we're faced every day with the question, how do we get through this in a way that has integrity as followers of Jesus? How does our Christian faith inform how we live and survive and even thrive in the world of politics? How do we treat each other specifically? How do we treat each other in the heat of political battle? That's really the question that we're wrestling with today. We've seen a lot of passion in this campaign, haven't we? That's kind of the good word for it, right? We've seen a lot of passion in this campaign. It's easy for that passion to kind of degenerate into ugliness. But is that just how things are done, you know, in politics? That's just the lay of the land. That's just what we should expect. And if we're going to participate, then we got to jump in there into the dogfight as well. How do we... How do we take our faith and let that inform how we, how we act in this political season? This, uh, this passion that we see in the, the, um, the campaign this, this year has laid bare some deep divisions in our country, hasn't it? And uh, we may think that this candidate or that candidate is extreme, and we may think, well, 
you know, it's only two more weeks, and then one of them at least will disappear from the scene, or at least have less of a, a, <laughs> a, a, a presence. But the reality is we have these two candidates because half of our neighbors nominated them, right? There are some real deep divisions in our country, in our community, and those divisions um, run right through our, our, our churches, our families, even our own homes. It gets personal, and it gets difficult, makes relationships difficult. So how can our faith help us navigate through these choppy waters? And how do followers of Jesus respond to all of this differently than the rest of the world? Well, you heard what Jesus said to us this morning in Matthew chapter 5. He starts out saying, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. He starts out with that phrase, You have heard it said. When Jesus says that, his hearers are alerted that, okay, he's going to be talking about the the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. That's not what they called it. It was just scripture for them. He's going to be quoting from the, the law or the prophets. And here Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments. And he, he says the Sixth Commandment. You've heard it was said, you shall not murder. That's uh, from Exodus 20. And then he reminds his hearers of the penalty and you shall be liable to court. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment or liable to court, depending on your translations. At this point, Jesus' listeners are probably thinking, yep, tracking with you. Yeah, yep, we've got it. We're not supposed to murder anyone. We've heard that one before. And frankly, we're pretty well behaved. You know, we got that one. So keep going, Jesus. Preach it. Yeah, we're with you. There's a story of a, a, a preacher who, who came to a new church and, uh, and, and sitting right down in the front of every service was a church member who would always nod and look around when points were made. And then at the end of every service, he would shake the pastor's hand and say, boy, you really got him today, didn't you, pastor? But he never seemed to apply it to himself. And, and the pastor used to wonder, how can I get him to realize that I'm talking to him, not just everybody else? How can I get him to apply this stuff to himself? And, and then one day, God sent an ice storm, and nobody made it to church except this one man. And so the pastor thought, thank you, Jesus. Here's my chance. And he gave him the whole sermon, the whole thing, preached it right to him. And then at the end, they were sort of saying goodbye and shaking hands. And the man said, man, pastor, if they had been here, you really would have gotten them today. <laughs> it's easy, isn't it, for us to take God's word and say, yeah, got it. Not for me. I don't need that. No problem without even really thinking about it. I mean, you've probably heard someone say, I'm not a bad person. I've never killed anyone, right? 
I mean, even as Christians, it can be easy for us to be smug and think that since we haven't physically murdered anyone, this, this commandment doesn't even apply to us. But man, Jesus here takes it to a whole new level. Look at what he says in verse 22. Just, just when we're feeling comfortable, in verse 21, we got the murder thing down. We're good. He says, but... Oh, when Jesus says that, you know you're in trouble. But I tell you, he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Huh. That's getting a little more close to home. And then he goes on and says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, we're going to talk about that word, is answerable to court. He's driving in the point a little deeper. And then he says, and anyone who says, you fool, he takes it a lot deeper than court here. He says, you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow. Jesus has given us both barrels here. He begins by saying, but I tell you. So you've heard it said, but I tell you. He's, he has said that he comes not to take away or erase the Old Testament, but to fulfill the law, to fulfill it. And so he's affirming everything in the Old Testament. He's filling it full of meaning. And what was implicit in the Old Testament law, Jesus is making explicit. He's giving us insight into the original purpose of God's law, which had been sort of lost on the, the religious leaders and the teachers of his day. Jesus is saying here, I'm going to the very heart of the law here to tell you how you can live it out in its deepest meaning. Keith Krell, writing about this, says, in doing so, Jesus moves the fruit, he moves from the fruit of murder to the root of murder, the heart attitude, the attitude of the heart. Jesus insists that we're all guilty of murder if we've ever been uh, guilty of being angry in word or thought or attitude or action. What's he talking about here? Because that seems pretty broad, doesn't it? What's he talking about here? Well, he says, if you say to anyone, raka, what is that word? Well, that's an Aramaic word, and in some translations they translate it for you, but if you have the NIV or some other ones, it may still have that Aramaic word right in there, raka, R-A-C-A, and that word means basically like, you empty-headed fool, you idiot, you imbecile. It's meant to be like a, a, an insult, People used that word raka when they were angry and wanted to attack someone's self-worth, wanted to attack who they really were and their dignity. Jesus gives us another word, too. He says, the same is true if you say, you fool. That word fool is the Greek noun moros, which is where we get the word moron. Um, in Jesus' day, moros, or fool, was used to describe a person's mental abilities. However, it was also used to describe a person's 
moral character. So if you called someone moros, you were calling them like a stupid liar or a stupid cheater. It was an insult, an insult on someone's uh, character as well as their intellect. One commentator I read who was analyzing these words says that, uh, that raka seems to be sort of an attack on the intellect, on someone's, um, on someone's head, while moros expresses contempt for one's character or one's heart. So both of these are meant to be um, used as, as real insults against who a person is. Jesus says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, he's talking about how we treat each other as Christians, but we can broaden that to how we live in this world. Anyone who says Raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's serious. So does that mean that every expression of anger is a sin? That we can never get angry? No, I don't think it does, because as we we read the Bible, we always have to take it in context and not just pull out one or two verses, but we can see as we read all of Scripture that Jesus himself became angry. And the Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. The anger is um, a natural reaction, but it's what we do with our anger that can cause us to sin or can we can handle that well. Jesus and Paul both referred to people as fools, but it wasn't this kind of flippant name-calling that Jesus is talking about here. They, they labeled people fools because they were blindly, foolishly allowing their religious practices to, to distort their lives with God. And Proverbs often refers to someone who is a fool, someone who is foolish, and not realizing what their real place is in relation to God. We see Jesus get angry in the Gospels. He got angry when he cleared the temple. He got angry with those who attacked him for healing on the Sabbath. But his anger wasn't a personal attack. When Jesus was angry, it was because of injustice or or sin, it was sort of a righteous anger. I think what Jesus is saying here is, we can disagree. We can disagree with people, even to the point that we feel really passionate about it. But what we cannot do is despise them. What we cannot do is despise them. And despising people is something we hear a lot in this election, isn't it? To not just disagree with the ideas, with the stances, with the opinions, with the choices of others, but to then say, I despise them. They're idiots. They're foolish. They're not worth even considering. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that there are some words that if we are followers of Jesus, we are simply not free to utter. We're, we're simply not. 
Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts this little passage that we just read in the message. He says this, You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you are on the brink of hellfire. And listen to how he ends this. He says, the simple moral fact is that words kill. That's serious. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Words are powerful. And they can hurt others, Jesus is saying here. James says the same thing. James 1.26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. If you're ever feeling a little too comfortable in your relationship with Jesus, just read the book of James. He always like smacks you between the eyes with things like this. Those who don't keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless, he says. What? Words are powerful. We use words a lot of times to give ourselves some wiggle room, don't we? But Jesus here and James, really the whole scripture is laying it out for us. Words are powerful. They can hurt others. And you know, words can hurt ourselves as well. We can poison ourselves with our words. I heard a, a joke that, about a joke that some children played on their grandfather. When he was asleep, they found some of his Limburger cheese in the refrigerator. If you've ever smelled Limburger cheese, you know it smells like something has died and is rotting in that little piece of cheese. So they got some of the cheese and, and, uh, and rubbed it on his mustache while he was asleep. When Grandpa woke up, he said, something in this living room stinks. And so then he went into the kitchen and with the cheese on his mustache, he said, something in this kitchen stinks. And then uh, finally he stuck his head out the back door and said, ah, oh, the whole world stinks. <laughs> Some of us have Limburger cheese in our hearts. And all we can perceive is things that stink. Words can put that kind of smelly poison within us. They can, they can be powerful to harm others, and they can be powerful to harm us as well. Jeff Wilson, who is a um, United Methodist pastor in uh, Alabama, he, uh, he wrote this this week on Facebook. Much of this election is being driven by fear. He's, he's a district superintendent, so he was writing this to his congregations in his district. He says, I am afraid as well, but not for the reasons you might think. I'm afraid that this election will change us, the people of God. I'm afraid that divisions sown in political parties will take root in churches. I'm afraid 
that our obsession with one human election will distract us from our mission as the people of God. Mostly I'm afraid that we, the people of God, will come to believe that hatred, dismay, disdain, and fear are Christian values to be lived in the world. They are not. Good reminder. Words are powerful. In the summer of 1774, six months after the act of rebellion known as the Boston Tea Party, the British Parliament was dissolved and general elections were set to begin on October 5th in 1774. And in many ways, England was a divided nation. There was this great disagreement, both moral and economic in nature, about what they called the American problem. Closer to home, here in America, morale was low, political radicalism was growing and threatening in small pockets around the country. Many citizens saw the upcoming election as a potential turning point for their beloved England, and people were lining up very emotionally on both sides of whether to be independent from England or whether to stay with their mother country. And campaigning was fierce, and tension was high. In the midst of that climate, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, wrote in his journal on October 6, 1774, he wrote these words, I met with those of our society, that was like our, our church group, who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy, two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those who voted on the other side. These words are pretty relevant for us today, too, aren't they? We may think that we're in the most contentious political battle ever and that that gives us uh, a free pass to say whatever we want and however we want to say it. But friends, we're no different than all the humans who have come before us. And our problems, realistically, are no bigger than the problems that have come before us. The human heart is still the same. There are some things we are simply not free to say if we are followers of Jesus. Words are powerful. Words are powerful. They can hurt and kill others and ourselves. But here's, here's the good news. Words are powerful, but they can also bring life. They are powerful to bring life. You know, the reason that Jesus gives us this kind of command that takes murder right down to how we think and how we speak, is not because he wants to just keep his followers on a short leash, not just because he likes to have us live in a little box and not be able to do whatever we feel like doing. It's because we have the potential to bring life with our words. He wants to use us 
to bring life to this world. Jesus talks about his followers being like yeast. Any of you bread makers out there? You know, you can make a a big batch of bread, you know, like a, a big bowl of bread dough with just a couple teaspoons of yeast. And yeast will turn it from like flat as a pizza to a nice, big, puffy loaf of bread. Jesus talks about his followers being like yeast. We may be small. We may be sprinkled a little bit here and there throughout our society. But boy, we can make a huge difference. Friends, in this political season that seems messier than any other that that we can remember. This is our moment. This is our moment as followers of Jesus. Adam Hamilton, who's uh, the pastor of a large Methodist church in in Missouri, once wrote a, uh, a book called Selling Swimsuits in the Arctic. And that was the metaphor he used for what it's like to be a Christian in this world. We're trying to sell swimsuits in the Arctic, right? Like, people don't always even know that they need the gospel. And trying to convince them maybe feels like trying to convince them of something that they don't even think they need. But I got to say, in this This time and this place that we live right now, the heat's been turned up. It's more like the tropics now. Selling swimsuits in the Arctic is not what we're up to anymore. The National Institute for Civil Discourse, which was established after uh, Congresswoman Gabby Gifford was shot, they uh, just published this statistic. 78% of Americans think incivility and political dysfunction prevent our country from moving forward. You know, we have something that our country is longing for right now, a way to move forward. People who know how to love, people who know how to talk to each other in a situation like this. Those, those stats that, that were in the video as we started, that uh, Christians often think of, or non-Christians often think things about Christians that are less than flattering, but that, was it 67% of people said they would come to church if they were invited that people are hungry for God. This this isn't about us. This isn't about making us look good as, as the followers of Jesus. This is about making God look good. This is about bringing life to people who need it. This is bringing light in the darkness. This is really our moment, followers of Jesus. Because if we love If we, as Micah says, seek justice, love kindness, walk humbly with our God, we will stand out. We will stand out. We used to blend in to our society. You know, Christian values were just sort of the norm. It was the water we were all swimming in. We have the chance to stand 
out and to show that God is real and makes a difference. Martin Luther King Jr. says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Imagine, imagine if all Christians lived this, what Jesus talks about here in Matthew chapter 5. Imagine if we spoke about even the people we disagree with the most strongly, if we spoke about them and to them with respect and care and love. Imagine what a difference that would make. Imagine the yeast that could spread throughout our whole country. Words are powerful. Imagine if Christians set the tone for this country's discourse by refusing to be drawn into name-calling and insults and all of that. Words are powerful. Jesus said this in John 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He says must, but we, we could put the word can in there. Because of what Jesus has done, we can love one another, not on our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God offers, to, to, to move and work through us. So Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We can do it. I'm not good enough. You're not good enough, but God is good enough. And he loves to use broken vessels who are willing are you willing to change the world? This, this is our moment. St. Francis was living in a time when Christians were not always the people who had the best reputation in the world. And he started talking about love. And he showed people what God could really do through people who were humble and willing to be used by God. His prayer that uh, we call the prayer of St. Francis, I'm sure he wrote down a lot of prayers, but this is one that has survived. His prayer is powerful, and I want to invite you to make it your prayer today. It's going to pop up on the screen. Let's pray this. I dare you to pray this aloud with me. Will you stand and let's make this our prayer today. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, and to be understood as to understand, to be loved 
as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. By this, all will know you're my disciples. If you love one another, let's sing together.